Hello and welcome to today's episode of Square One, the official podcast of the Down to Earth Institute, with me, Manveer Gill, and our co-host, Todd Olive. In today's podcast, we'll be covering the death of the United States Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the UK Citizens' Assembly report on climate change, and Todd's upcoming blog post, Cavalry and Silver Bullets. But first up, the news. Todd, take it away. Thank you, Manveer, and hello, everyone. Plug-in hybrids have been described as a wolf in sheep's clothing, with analysis by pressure groups Transport and Environment and Greenpeace suggesting that carbon dioxide emissions are two and a half times higher than official tests suggest, at 120 grams of CO2 per kilometre. In 2018, the average new passenger car registered in the EU emitted 120.4 grams of CO2 per kilometre. The US Democratic Party presidential nominee Joe Biden has said he will not allow peace in Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit, saying that any US-UK trade deal would be contingent on respect for the Good Friday Agreement. The comments were made after widespread outrage at the government's internal market bill, which many argue breaks international law by overriding parts of the UK-EU withdrawal agreement. BP has called time on the world's rising demand for fossil fuels. Its influential annual report, published last Monday, says that demand for fuel may never fully recover from the impact of COVID-19, and that as clean electricity from wind farms, solar panels and hydropower continue to grow, demand for oil is likely to begin falling in absolute terms for the first time in modern history. Police in northwest China detained three wildlife conservation activists for picking quarrels and provoking troubles. One, Li Genshan, has been a prominent campaigner against pollution in the Tenjer, one of the country's largest deserts. The Atlantic Ocean was graced by five named tropical cyclones, which has only happened once before. Paulette hit Bermuda on Monday and Sally hit America as a hurricane on Wednesday, bringing floods to Alabama, Louisiana and Florida. Teddy seems headed for Newfoundland. Rene and Vicky petered out. The government of Barbados has announced that it will become a republic, A throne speech delivered by the Governor-General but written by the Prime Minister, Mia Motley, announced that the country will remove Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state by November next year. Donald Trump hosted delegations from Israel, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates at the White House to sign agreements that normalise relations between Israel and the two Gulf states. According to Mr Trump, the deals would serve as the foundation for a comprehensive peace across the entire region. Palestinian militants in Gaza fired rockets at Israel shortly after the ceremony took place. The Science-Based Targets Initiative, a partnership between CDP, the UN Global Compact, the World Resources Institute and the WWF, has announced that it has begun developing the world's first ever global standard for corporations setting credible net zero emissions targets. The standard will include what it means for corporates to reach net zero emissions, analysis of existing target setting practices, assessment of strategies that are consistent with achieving a net zero economy, and initial recommendations for science-based goals. Research by KPMG has found that only 8% of major UK businesses have a full plan in place for climate change, despite most firms seeing the crisis as a top priority. A poll of more than 160 business leaders found that 89% of businesses were in early stage discussions regarding managing climate risks. And finally, 
Data unveiled by the Food Foundation has, re has revealed that more than 14% of adults living with children experienced food insecurity in the UK in the past six months. That's 4 million people. While 30-day rates have improved since the early months of lockdown, the Foundation commented that the data showed the urgent need for long-term policy measures to ensure parents and children have access to a healthy diet. And for news from the Global South, back to Manvir. Thanks, Todd. In Brazil, fires have devastated the Pantanal, the world's largest tropical wetland. Many local authorities, firefighters and environmental groups believe this to be caused by humans as part of strategies by cattle farmers to clear land for new pastures. Over a fifth of the ecosystem has been destroyed since fires reached a record high in July, decimating an area rich in unique wildlife. Deforestation in the surrounding region in recent years is a leading factor for changes to the local climate and a lack of rainfall, contributing to dry conditions that facilitated the devastation. The UN have accused Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro of crimes against humanity, including extrajudicial executions and the systematic use of torture. Their findings, corroborated by over 3,000 cases of evidence, show how Maduro and senior, senior officials coordinated to commit these crimes. This report follows international criticism of Maduro's government, which has seen millions of Venezuelans flee economic meltdown and chronic food shortages. In Sudan, inflation has reached a record high of 167%, with the costs of staples like bread and sugar having increased by 50% in only the past two weeks. This has only compounded the national state of emergency after flooding killed 99 people this year and damaged more than 100,000 homes. And finally, in a UN report requested by the Human Rights Council, Burundi has struggled to see human rights progress since national unrest that began in 2015, with the new government including individuals identified as having committed human rights violations in previous administrations. In particular, they have found that children and adolescents have been targeted, recruited into the ruling party's youth league or harmed in place of other family members. And now on to our headline stories. Todd, take it away. United States Supreme Court Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, originally appointed by President Clinton, has died at the age of 87 after 27 years of service as one of the court's liberal justices. Republican leadership, including President Donald Trump, have indicated that they intend to push through a nomination prior to elections on November the 3rd, raising the stakes in an already highly divisive race for control of the White House as well as the Senate, which confirms Supreme Court nominations. Democrats fear that any successful nomination by President Trump would risk the collapse of historic liberal victories on issues like abortion, which conservative figures such as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell have long sought to overturn. This, of course, is in the context of McConnell's refusal in 2016 to consider then-President Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland, following the death of Conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, on the grounds that the nomination was made in an election year, circumstances which are, of course, repeated here. In response to accusations of hypocrisy over the situation, McConnell and his allies have argued that, as the same party controls both the White House and the Senate, the situation today is different than that surrounding the 11th-month blockade staged back in 2016. The implications of this decision are clearly wide-reaching, affecting all aspects of life in the States and potentially globally, with rulings on topics far beyond abortion, 
covering issues like gerrymandering, executive authority, immigration, and the environment up for grabs should the Republican effort prove successful. By extension, the precedent that the party would be setting could provoke major backlash from Democratic legislators should they be successful in November's election. With the future of the filibuster, the method by which minority parties can obstruct the legislative process, in the sights of some. Regardless of the outcome, the coming fight will doubtless have implications up and down the sustainability agenda. It really is hard to overstate the impact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had in making the United States a more just and equal nation, particularly in terms of addressing discrimination against women. With Trump looking to replace her within the next week, we'll soon find out who replaces her. Ginsburg's mission isn't yet complete. Discrimination is still a systemic problem today. Here's hoping that her replacement is also one to challenge the status quo for the greater good. And for our last news story, the first UK-wide Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change recently published a report on how the UK can reach its target of net zero emissions by 2050. Taking a representative sample of the population, the report evaluates different strategies for reaching net zero and provides a set of recommendations on a variety of crucial topics, including how we travel, energy use in homes, and what we buy. One theme underlying the report is education, people needing to know about the issue, especially generations that are born and growing up in the middle of this crisis, but also the average household, in order to facilitate collective decision-making supportive of reaching net zero. The House of Commons select committees that commissioned this report have asked Boris Johnson to respond before the end of the year, a report that may be difficult to come by in the face of a second national lockdown and ongoing Brexit negotiations. The report of the Climate Assembly is clearly a significant step forward for climate action at a political level in the UK, But questions remain over whether the political will to implement its recommendations actually exists. One wonders in particular whether whether it remains for politicians and for activists to highlight the significant co-benefits of many of the report's recommendations, which stretch far beyond the clearly extremely menial and minor cause of saving our civilization. And that leads us nicely into our final segment for today's show. And Todd... You've got a blog coming out later this week, Cavalry and Silver Bullets. What's it about? So Cavalry and Silver Bullets um, is, is actually something that came to me while I was watching one of the, uh, the latest Star Wars films a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and I was, I was sat there watching what, you know, one of the kind of classically dramatic battle scenes. Um, and the, the good guys were losing. And without seeking to, to spoil too much, you see some mist gather on the horizon and somebody off screen shouts, it's the rebels. Um, now, of course, having seen the film uh, before, I knew this was coming. Um, but, but even when I saw it the first time, um, it, it had occurred to me that there would probably be some kind of intervention from the cavalry um, like that. And uh, a couple of kind of acrobatic mental leaps later, um, I was I was thinking about kind of how I, I believe actually I was reading the news about the climate assembly report. I was I was thinking about how um, many people seem to expect things like um, uh, sorry things like um, many people seem to expect young people or, or technologies like carbon capture and storage to really kind of charge to the rescue and save the day. And make kind of the the happy ending that we're all waiting for. Now, I'm I'm no psychologist, 
Um, but it seems to me that that there must be some reflection of of that um, attitude in in our our literature, in our fiction, because of course we we write um, a kind of a, a according to to what we know. If you if you kind of you see where I'm coming from, Manfi. Um, so the yeah the, the the blog is about the idea that um, we shouldn't expect young people or kind of mythical, if you like, technologies um, to save us from the coming storm, because in reality, they probably won't. Um, you mentioned the silver bullet, carbon capture and storage, um, and how that progress might not sufficiently develop in time to meet our climate goals. Could you explain well what that is for our listeners and also why that might be the case? Why, so, why won't it arrive in time? Yeah, of course. So uh, C- CCS is the idea that we can carbon capture and storage, it stands for. It's the idea that it's, the, it's, it's a technology for, they call it scrubbing, uh, carbon dioxide from the air. Um, there, are, there are two ways of doing it. You can either uh, remove it from the air at sources of pollution. Um, so, so currently a, a couple of dozen major power plants across the globe that are powered either on, on coal or natural gas have carbon st- capture and storage kind of test units um, fitted to them. And what that does is it captures the carbon dioxide where it's emitted and it stores it underground. So it never gets emitted and it can't contribute to the enhanced greenhouse effect. Um, then there's direct air carbon capture and storage, which is basically setting up as the currently as the technology currently exists, a massive wall of fans which drive air through and, and clean carbon dioxide from the air as that happens. And again, it, it subsequently gets stored. Um, where it can't kind of impact global warming. As for um, why carbon capture and storage still still looks a bit dubious, I, I mentioned there are a couple of dozen test cases for it. But other than that, kind of the, the, the practical real-world deployment of this technology is extremely limited at the moment. Um, most of its advocates point to examples like um, solar power or wind power, which have really taken off in the last decade much, much faster than we anticipated um, they would as a kind of a, a counter to that. Um, but I, I think what, what most people are ignoring, actually, is the, the fantastic co-benefits that renewable energies have, because by, by installing kind of moving to a, an energy grid that is based on renewables like solar and wind, um, you, you, gain, you gain energy security, you reduce your running costs, you can decentralize the grid as well. Um, so that there are there are huge, along with kind of benefits for for things like air quality, which has health implications and, and environmental implications. That so there there are huge co benefits to these technologies that have taken off in the last ten years. When you look at carbon capture and storage, though, other than kind of pretty limited markets in using CO two for things like um, making coke, which is of course um, the, the the bubbles in in sodas are um, are carbon dioxide bubbles. Um, the fossil fuel industry actually uses it to pump more um, oil out of out of reserves. The the carbon dioxide gets pumped into the ground and out comes um, oil. That's another use for it. And that there are a few other kind of pretty limited uses for carbon dioxide. But other than that, there's no real monetary value, no real reward to capturing this carbon and storing it under the ground. Obviously, of course, other than the, you know, this extremely minor issue of saving the world from itself um, and, and stopping climate change. So there's no kind of external economic incentive for this technology to be rolled out on kind of a wide scale. 
Um, and yeah, okay, that's that's possibly a cynical way of looking at it. But I think unless we see kind of a radical change to the way our economic systems are structured in the next, like, realistically four or five years, which I think we can probably all agree isn't going to happen in kind of a meaningful, large enough scale way, um, then economic pro- processes and, and Adam Smith's kind of invisible hand are going to be the big things that drive new technologies like carbon capture and storage. So it's just not going to get deployed fast enough. So let me get this straight. CCS isn't going to be mobilized in time and, well, potentially. And and also we, we've got this issue of the younger generation, all, all the hopes are being piled on, well, on us. Uh, so what do we need to do in light of this? What what What's your... Are you, are you proposing a solution here? G- give me something to uh, to end on that makes me feel optimistic about all of this. So, I mean, that's a that's a difficult question. If I had the solution, I think I'd have made rather a lot more money writing a book about it than uh, talking about it on a, on a podcast. Um, no, it's it's a, it's a it's an important question to kind of think think constructively rather than just criticize. Um, I think that there needs to be a role for. The, the, the Climate Assembly report is quite heavy on um, education. Um, and while kind of education on a large enough scale to make climate action to the degree necessary um, sufficiently widely accepted would probably take a long time. I think in the short term, we could really capitalize on the co-benefits um, of, of policies and of actions that the climate action um, really involved. So I've already talked about the huge co-benefits of renewable energy, not only in terms of, of health, but in terms of energy security um, and, and obviously in, in terms of resource use, because oil and, and gas are obviously at the end of the day scarce resources. Um, so there's there's the, the short term avenue of really emphasizing those co-benefits um, to, to try and build more of a political coalition, because one, one of the reasons that the climate movement can't get enough traction um, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear whether you agree with me on this, Manfred, or not, um, is that it's often seen as a leftist issue. Um, and while there are, of course, um, big questions of, of kind of equity and the just transition um, and historical responsibility that are kind of inextricably linked with climate change, if the discussion is all about them, um, that, that, that sort of it has the effect of excluding half of the political spectrum, basically. Um, which is perhaps more of a problem in the United States, where politics tends to be much more right-wing anyway, than it is in, in places like, um, well, less so the UK nowadays, but places like continental Europe. So really emphasising those co-benefits to try and build a, a kind of a grand political coalition that crosses the aisle, if you like, um, to, to kind of to advocate for rapid climate action. That would be, I think, my... Um, my way forward if I could have my way. Well, I certainly love that vision. And I think that idea of co-benefits is so important about also turning this into a positive conversation and remembering that actually the solutions that everyone is suggesting here go beyond just climate change. They facilitate growth, economic growth, if if if, if that's what our main goal is. Um, although that's I'd like a different to question that... entirely. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to think that climate change uh, has to be imperative here. So, right, that gives me gives me some some hope, some some something to think about. Um, 
But with that, we have to come to a close for the third episode of Square One, a down-to-earth podcast. Keep an eye out for the next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, check out our website for more on sustainability. That's www.downtoearth.institute. Thanks for listening.